Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us um, to look into your word. Uh, God, we, we want to remember our friends Daichi and Joy. Uh, we pray uh, just for your healing and, and protective hand uh, over their situation. We pray for the health of the baby and just the Joy's health and uh, just that you would encourage them in this time of uncertainty. Uh, Lord, we're encouraged that uh, even in all the craziness that they can still find peace in you um, and even just texting with Daichi, being able to joke with him and laugh with him. It's encouraging, Lord, that their hope is in you. But, but God, we pray for uh, just that you would guide them through this, um, these few weeks. And Lord, that you would work your purposes, you would strengthen their faith, um, and you would allow them to have a healthy baby. And so we love them, Lord. Uh, we care deeply about them, and we know that you love them more and that you'll take care of them. God, we pray for our time in the Word, uh, that you would um, just show your truth to us. And I think for many of us, this is a familiar passage. Um, but really, Lord, we ask that you, your, by your spirit, that you would challenge us tonight um, just about what it, what it is that really matters to us in our lives, right? where it is that we really find joy. Um, and so do that through your word tonight. God, we thank you. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Many of you uh, know who Jonathan Edwards is. He is considered the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. He wrote the well-known resolutions um, when he was 20 years old. What you might not know about Jonathan Edwards is that he was fired from his church. And a lot of things happened to lead up to it. There were issues, uh, difficult people. There were like something with church discipline, things like that, that looking back, yeah, sure, Jonathan Edwards, he probably could have handled it better. Um, but the reason why he, he got kicked out of, or he got fired from his church uh, is because he would not compromise uh, on scripture. He's, he stood for the purity of the church, even if that meant actually going against his own grandfather's policy. And all of this messiness, it culminated in a church vote, uh, and in July 1750, Jonathan Edwards was voted out by his own church by a count of more than 200 to 23. One of Edward's close friends, he was sitting there on that day observing the vote and, and the aftermath, and he wrote the following, and I want you to listen to it carefully. He wrote, That faithful witness, speaking of Edward's, received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good overbalancing all imaginable ills of life even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismission. As you hear that story, I want to ask you a question and it's this. What is it that will make you happy? What is it that will make you happy? And I think for most of us, uh, the way that we think about this question is probably in terms of gain, right? Especially at this season in your, in your life, the age that you're at, the thing that will make us happy is probably something that we want to attain in the future. We think in terms of gain, I'll be happy when I gain this thing or when I gain that thing. But let me ask you again, what is it that will make you happy? Let me ask that a different way. What is it that will keep you happy in the midst of loss? What is it that will keep you happy when you experience loss? And I think that is the question that Paul presents us with in our passage tonight. So 
some context for us. We talked about this last week. The letter of Philippians was a thank you letter to the church in Philippi for this generous gift that they had given to Paul. Um, the church at Philippi, they had been very faithful supporters of Paul from the very first day that they met him. Um, and so Paul, he's writing from prison, right? We know that. And uh, towards the beginning of this imprisonment, there was actually a period of time where they lost track of where Paul was. Um, and so they, they couldn't support him, they couldn't give to him because like, they had no idea where he was. And so when they finally received news about his whereabouts, they promptly sent Epaphroditus, who this representative from their church, to minister to Paul and to deliver this gift that they had for, uh, for him. And you, you can read about that in Philippians 4.10. And so imagine you're a member of the church of Philippi. Epaphroditus uh, is back. He's talked to Paul. He's back from this long journey. And he comes back with this letter from Paul. And you've, you've just listened to Philippians 1, verses 1 to 11, right? We, we looked at that last week. Paul's warm and affectionate greeting, his thanksgiving. And after all of that, now you're eager to hear this update about how Paul is doing, uh, how his condition is, like how's his health, when's the trial, where are they keeping him, how's the food in prison, all of that stuff. Except Paul doesn't provide an update on how he's doing, but how the gospel is doing. Paul, he doesn't write about what has happened to him, as much as, how, as much as it is how he views what has happened to him. And that's our passage tonight. Through Paul's words, we learn from someone whose happiness, as Edward's friend wrote about him, someone whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. And Paul shows us the right thing and the only thing that is worth investing all of our joy into. The only thing that, that can remain untouched by circumstances in your life. And he shows us how when our joy is found in this right thing, that we're able to see these obstacles and trials and suffering as opportunities in the hands of a sovereign God. Okay, so with all of that in mind, let's read our passage for tonight. Philippians 1, we'll be reading verses 12 to 18. Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18. Paul writes this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I have two headings um, for us tonight. Uh, first one is this, surprising sovereignty in every circumstance. Surprising sovereignty in every circumstance. We see that in verses 12 to 14. So let me read that again for us. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul says in verse 12, I want you to know what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It has served to advance the gospel. And that word, um, advance, 
there it carries the word of forward progress. Okay, um, it was kind of a military term. It spoke of, uh, like, picture an army moving through the forest, cutting down trees, move, removing barriers, so that it might continue marching onward um, to its destination. And Paul says that's what happened with the gospel, that it has served to advance the gospel. I want you to imagine being one of the, the ch- uh, members of uh, this church in Philippi, right? Hearing the news of Paul's imprisonment, you probably feared that these present circumstances, Paul being in prison, meant a blow to Paul's ministry. And we saw last week that like, the Philippians were really devoted to this, right? They really cared about gospel ministry. And so you might have been thinking, like, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen to Paul? What's going to happen to the ministry? What are people going to think of Paul's reputation? Um, and I think for, for many of us, I know this is a familiar passage, and so it's like we already know how it turns out, right? We, we know Paul's happy in prison, all that stuff. And so it's hard to imagine like what this actually means. But just try to imagine this. Imagine if like AACF wasn't allowed to be an organization on campus anymore. Or like pretend Lighthouse, like all of a sudden we just lost this building. Or if the government decided that it was illegal to be um, a pastor anymore. Okay, so this is like a real and a significant obstacle that we're talking about. And so you've been worried, what would happen? Like, how are we going to advance the gospel now? But Paul says, the effect of my imprisonment has actually been the reverse of what you might have expected. Or you might have expected this hindrance or this obstacle to the gospel. But look at what Paul says. He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel you see that he is talking about importance here. That what's happened to me isn't as important as what's happened with the gospel. That all of these things might have happened to me, but they have only served to advance God's purposes. Uh, that my freedoms, my comforts, my preferences, they might be all taken away from me. But that's not as important as what God is doing with it. And God is using it for, for something that is far greater than myself. I think Paul says something similar um, in 2 Timothy 2. We, we went through this passage a couple weeks ago. But he, he says this, um, speaking of his imprisonment in 2 Timothy, he says, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Right, that's what's happened to me. I'm bound with chains. But the word of God is not bound. It's not as important as, as what the word of God is doing. What's happening with that? See, when Paul weighs me, versus the advancement of the gospel, he recognizes that there is something more important than me. There is something more important than you. And it's that kind of mindset, I think, that helps him to understand his own suffering rightly. That the gospel has been made known, not just like in spite of adversity, but because of his adversity. That his suffering itself has served the advancement of the gospel. And I want you to understand, this isn't just like, uh, like optimism. It's not just wishfulness on Paul's part. This was a deep-rooted conviction that what happened to me isn't all that important. What has happened with the gospel was something to rejoice over. See, Paul is not trying to evoke sympathy. He's not trying to invite you to his little pity party. He is the one who is trying to produce joy in the hearts of the Philippians. Maybe that's happened to you before. You know, like you, you try to counsel or encourage someone who's in the hospital or who's going through something. 
Um, maybe they lost a loved one, and you're like talking to them, and they're just like, I'm the, I'm the one supposed to encourage you, right? Like you're encouraging me, and that's what's happening here with Paul. He's, he uh, talks about two ways, specifically, that he's witnessed the advance of the gospel through his circumstances. The first way is this. He has seen the lost evangelized. The lost evangelized. That's in verse 13. He writes, So that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard um, probably referred to this elite group of soldiers uh, we don't know the exact circumstances of Paul's imprisonment. He was likely placed under, Paul, uh, under house arrest in Rome, where he was probably chained, like on his wrists, to one of the guards. Okay? And for me, the introvert in me, like, just totally cringes at that. Um, like, I'm, I'm cool with house arrest. Like, I promise I won't leave. Just don't chain me to someone. And as each of these imperial guards are chained to Paul, they would have done so four hours at a time, rotation. He would share with them the good news of Christ. And for Paul, like, he literally had a captive audience. And so Paul did this so much so that he can write, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard why, I'm, why I am in here. That Paul's imprisonment, uh, which you might have thought would be this obstacle to gospel ministry, has really served as this opportunity. This opportunity that he wouldn't have had otherwise, and this opportunity for the gospel to reach where it hadn't reached before. Right, you think about uh, like the elite Roman class. You think about military officers, uh, officers, centurions, civil officials, governors. In fact, if you Turn to Philippians 4.22 real quick. This is just like something he slides in at the end of his letter. He says, uh, Philippians 4.22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Right? So because of this opportunity, because of Paul's witness in his imprisonment, there are saints in Caesar's household. Once you look at that phrase there, um, he, he says, my imprisonment is for Christ. My imprisonment is for Christ. Um, and most of you has, have the ESV. Uh, it translates that as for Christ, which communicates the idea of like being in chains on behalf of Christ, right? Or like being in chains for Christ's sake. Um, and that's true. But I think that, but the preposition that he actually uses here is not for, like on behalf of, but in, right? In Christ, in chains, in Christ. And I think Paul uses that preposition intentionally to communicate to us something more. Um, Philippians 3.10 is helpful for us here. This is what he says in Philippians 3.10. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. And I may share in his sufferings. In other words, Paul, he views his imprisonment not simply as like, I'm suffering for Christ or I'm like making this sacrifice for Jesus or like I'm such a martyr for, for Jesus, but he views his imprisonment as this participation in Christ's sufferings. But he views this as this like, it's just part of his discipleship. It's this manifestation of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And in chapter three, he's gonna talk about that. And he says that sharing in Christ's suffering is a means of experiencing communion with Jesus. See, I think that reorients our experiences of suffering and affliction. That it's not just thing that, 
this thing that we do like for the sake of Christ or on behalf of Christ, but it is part of living the Christian life. It's just a manifestation of our discipleship. Let me put it like this. It's nothing personal. Okay, it's nothing personal. It's part of living the cruciform life. And so don't make it all about you. Now, of course, Paul would prefer freedom himself. Of course, he would prefer other circumstances to evangelize, but he recognizes that God is in charge of that, and God has used his chains to advance the gospel. Okay, so that's the first thing. The lost have been evangelized as a result of his imprisonment. Second, the brothers have been encouraged. The brothers encouraged. Verse 14. Paul writes, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, I don't think that Paul is saying that these brothers, um, like they just totally lacked boldness or courage. Um, Rather, I think what he's saying is that these circumstances have helped to embolden them all the more. That just as, uh, just as Paul's imprisonment has served to bring the gospel to places where it hadn't otherwise been able to reach, that in the same way, Paul's example has caused their courage to reach new heights, right? to be even more bold that, that, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And I think this just shows us, this is a side point, but um, I think this shows us that we need examples. Right? We need examples that there is value Uh, and looking to examples of other believers who have grappled with suffering in a way that honors God, uh, that there is value in looking to other believers who can challenge us to be more bold uh, with the gospel. I think of uh, the reformers Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Maybe you guys have heard this story before. They were reformers in Oxford, England. Uh, They were there during the reign of Queen Mary, otherwise known as Bloody Mary, uh, for just how many Christians she persecuted. On October 16th, 1555, uh, Latimer and Ridley, they were led to be burned at the stake for their fidelity to scripture. And as the flames engulfed them, Latimer turned to Ridley and he said this, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. The part of that story that doesn't get told as often is um, that Latimer actually died much more quickly from the smoke and the flames than Ridley did. So, like, meanwhile, like, Latimer says this, you know, like, really inspirational thing to Ridley, and Ridley's, like, dying by a slow-burning fire. <laughs> Latimer's dead already. <laughs> I think of Jim Elliott, right? He was a missionary to the Alca Indians in the jungles of Ecuador. Um, these people, they were a notoriously dangerous tribe, on January 8, 1956, Jim Elliott, only 28 years at the time, was killed along with four other missionaries. And this is what he wrote in the words in his, uh, in his journal around that time. You guys have probably heard this before. He wrote, he is, not, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Right, those are examples for us to embolden our faith. And sure, those might be extreme examples, Right? But I can think of uh, people in my life who have been valuable and powerful testimonies to me, whose examples have given me fresh courage to be more bold for Jesus. Um, I can think of one particular friend. 
uh, he serves on youth staff, actually, and he's done that for me through his eagerness in evangelism. And whenever I'm with this friend, he's just like always, always looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus. Uh, he's like always trying to new, meet new people. Uh, like I sit in, I've sat in an Uber with him once, and like he's trying to evangelize the Uber driver. I'm just like, I'm trying to get to point B right here. Um, birthday parties, like his own birthday party. He's like evangelizing this stranger he met at the park. Um, all these different things, and sometimes when I'm there with him, like, I can feel a little guilty, because I'm like, oh, like, I'm the pastor here, like, I should be doing this, but I'm reminded from this verse that that, that, that's God's grace to me, right? We need examples in our life. We need people to challenge us to be more bold for Jesus. Let me ask you, what about your own example? What about your own example? Can you say along with Paul in your difficult circumstances that Christ has become known to those around you? That when you go through seasons of your own suffering or your own trials, would any be, anyone be interested in Jesus after having watched how you reacted or how they listened to your words, how you love others, how you treat others in your seasons of suffering? What do people say about you? <coughs> Let's bring it to our, our main point, or bring it back to our main point so far. Paul recognizes that his present circumstances of imprisonment and suffering are this opportunity for the advancement of the gospel, and so he can rejoice. Paul has radical joy despite, despite remarkable loss. C.S. Lewis, he um, once famously wrote that suffering was God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Okay, suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That suffering gets our attention. That suffering makes you l- lean in and listen. It makes us ponder what really matters and what is most important. I think of whenever we have uh, people here share testimonies at Lighthouse. Right? It's some of my favorite services. Um, and don't get me wrong, like all of the testimonies are awesome stories of God's grace. Right? But like some testimonies are better than other testimonies. Um, or at least more powerful, more memorable, right? There are, there are those in which the person, all right, take that back. Some testimonies are more memorable than other testimonies. You guys know what I'm talking about. But sometimes there are those in which the person has like just really suffered in this significant way. They've experienced sickness or, or like death in the family or divorce or just like all kinds of crazy stuff. And when they're sharing about this, the sanctuary You guys know what I'm talking about. It's like dead quiet and everyone's listening. And what that person has to say in light of that suffering are some of the most memorable, most indelible, most powerful words probably that come from the stage on a Sunday morning. That's my point. There is no greater or more powerful witness for Christ than that which which comes through our suffering and our experiences of adversity. And of course, we would never choose that for ourselves, right? We would never choose suffering, but realize that it is an opportunity that you wouldn't have otherwise to make Christ known and to encourage the believers around you. It's an opportunity for you to show others how much Christ is worth to you. And so, brother, sister, are you in the middle of difficult circumstances in your own life? And I'm sure that some of you are. Could God be using that in the lives of others? 
Right? Could God be using that to make the, the, the gospel known to those who don't know it? Could God be using that to just add weight to your words when you talk about Jesus, to strengthen and encourage your brothers and sisters in their own walks as they watch you go through it? Can you draw the line from your suffering to what God could be doing in your suffering? And could that be reason for joy in your life as you endure it? Verses 12 to 14, Paul talks about how his circumstances are powerless to rob him of his joy. But as we continue reading, we learn that Paul's troubles didn't just come from circumstances, uh, but also from people. In verses 15 to 18, we learn that even while in prison, that there were people who were trying to afflict Paul and to cause him grief. And that leads us to our second point, surprising joy despite affliction. Surprising joy despite affliction. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And so in these verses, Paul is going to kind of jump back to verse 14, where he talks about those who have been emboldened, who have been given more courage to preach the gospel. And he says within those people, there's actually two groups of them. First, there are those who preach Christ from goodwill. Okay, Paul says that they, are, uh, that they do it out of love, that they know I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So this first group of people who have been emboldened to preach the gospel, they understand that Paul's imprisonment is for the defense of the gospel. They're not questioning his character. They know that it's uh, divinely appointed by God. They know that Paul's goal wasn't a defense of himself or to protect his own life. Um, and what they did as a result is they preached the gospel more boldly out of a love for Paul, out of, out of a love for God. They do it out of love. But there's a second group that Paul talks about. And they are those who preach Christ from envy and rivalry. They preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Paul says that they proclaim Christ out of a selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And notice the contrast there, right? Whereas the first group, they preach Christ from goodwill. These, these people, they preach from envy and rivalry. Uh, the first group, they, they do so out of love. These people do it out of selfish ambition. <coughs> uh, this first group, they acknowledges and they understand the divine perspective, right? Paul says, they know that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But this other group, they think or they suppose that what they're going to do is going to afflict me in my imprisonment. In other words, these people, they looked at Paul's suffering and they thought to, th they thought to themselves, how can we gain from Paul's suffering? How can we gain from the fact that Paul is in prison? Now, it's unclear exactly who these people were, um, but what is clear is that these people were not preaching a false gospel. They were not preaching a false Christ because elsewhere in scripture, we see that Paul has serious problems with that. You see that in Galatians 1.8, 2 Corinthians 11.4. <laughs> okay, so let's be clear with that. They're not preaching a false gospel, um, but we don't know much more or much more else than that. I like what one commentator wrote about Paul's lack of detail here. He says that there is grace in Paul's silence. There's grace in Paul's silence that we don't need to know. Like, that's, that's besides the point. 
So these were people whose message was correct, but whose motives were wrong. They didn't preach sincerely. They were pro-Christ, but anti-Paul. They preached from envy and rivalry, somehow hoping to afflict Paul, uh, whether that meant like trying to just one-up him or like challenge his apostleship. Uh, maybe this was OG sheep stealing. Maybe they're just trying to rub his imprisonment in his face. We don't know. They, just, they did it out of envy and rivalry. It was probably this personal kind of vendetta that they had against him. Now, you might read that and you might think, like, these guys are just so petty, right? Like, Paul's in, in prison, after all. Like, why do they have to try to do this? Um, but think about this. Like, we all do this, don't we? Like, we all feel the need to be ahead. We all feel the need to be first, even if it's something really, really unimportant. All right? Think about, like, just driving on the road. You know, like, when someone cuts around you to get in front of you, and when that happens, you know what you want to do, right? You want to, like, cut in front of them. For no reason, you're, like, you're not even going to the same place. In our own ways, we all try to advance ourselves. We want to be first. We want to look good. We want to be recognized, and that even happens in ministry. Envy, which is the word that Paul uses, envy causes us to begrudge the successes of our opponents, and it makes us celebrate their misfortunes. And that's exactly what was happening here with Paul. And so imagine you in the place of Paul, right? and I think this is like when it really gets hard for us. When people wrong you, like that's when it really gets hard. For some of us, we might be all right with trusting God with circumstances that you can't control. Right? Like maybe some of us, we would be okay with being thrown in prison because like, you're not going to you know, like escape out of prison. You can't do anything about it. But when it comes to dealing with difficult people, it's a lot harder to give that over to God because you, can, you feel like you can do something about it, right? You feel like maybe you're even in the right and you can do something about it. You can make it known that you're in the right. So what does Paul say? Verse 18. He says, what then? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What then? In other words, so what? Right? All of this is going to happen to me. It's happening to me, but so what? He doesn't say, why me? He doesn't say, like, I'm no longer useful, or God must have, like, forgotten about me, or God has taken my calling away. He doesn't feel self-pity. What is self-pity? Self-pity is believing that we deserve more than we're getting. That's what self-pity is. John Piper, he, he uh, describes self-pity in this way. He says, the reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be so needy. But the need arises from a wounded ego. It doesn't come from a sense of unworthiness, from a sense, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It is a response of unapplauded pride. That's not what we see from Paul here. There's no self-pity. He says, what then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And how can Paul say that? I think maybe the reason is because for many of us, the gospel is like just this thing in our lives. Or it's just this thing that we know. And maybe for you, it might even be an important thing. It might be a priority but for most of us, the gospel is probably not a passion. Right? It's not all-consuming. It doesn't dictate everything about our lives. But that's what the gospel was for Paul. I just uh, like think about your evangelism. I'm guessing most of us 
probably aren't evangelizing as much as we should. Right? But understand where Paul's coming from. He was in the trenches. He was sharing the gospel. He was hoping that people would be saved. And so for him, like this whole situation wasn't this matter of like, oh, let's sit in a conference room. Let's think about like, should we partner with this church and do like this ministry event together even if you know, like, we don't agree on every single point of doctrine? Like, he's not doing this. For Paul, this was a matter of getting more reinforcements. This was getting more help in the game. So let me put it like this to you. Are you in the game? Are you preaching the gospel? Are you, is it all consuming for you? Are you evangelizing? Are you in the game? Because when you're in the game, then you're going to take whatever help you can get. You'll take whatever help you can get, even if it costs you. And for Paul, that came at the cost of his reputation. Now, Paul is not condoning these people's motives. Um, elsewhere in scripture, he does defend himself. He defends his apostleship. He, he says that his reputation uh, is a good thing. And what I, I think Paul understood was that although, yeah, it's good, it's important, it's good to protect your, your reputation, but that's not the ultimate thing. That, yeah, you matter, and the things that happen to you matter, but they're not the point, right? They're not the most important thing. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, there was a situation in the Corinthian church uh, in which uh, basically some of the church members were taking other church members to court, right? And they were going to like, uh, just like a normal uh, secular court, right? secular judges. And, and so Paul writes this to them. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. What he means by that is, like, you guys are the church. You should be getting along. Like, the fact that you guys have to bring your issues to the judge, who's not even a Christian, who's not even part of the church, is already a defeat uh, for the name of Jesus Christ, right? It, it shames the name of Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And why does he say that? His point is it's more important for the church to be the church, to defend the name of Jesus, to make Jesus look good and worthy and beautiful than for its members to receive the personal satisfaction of like winning lawsuits against each other. Right? Like that is the more important thing. And so for Paul here, in terms of how these people would affect him, he says, yeah, they're, like, they're going to afflict me, they're going to make me mad, but that's not the most important thing. I'm going to rejoice in the truth, in the fact that truth is being proclaimed. That it's not about what people say or think about me, but it's about what people say about Jesus. Guys, can you say that with Paul? That as long as Christ is proclaimed, that you will rejoice. Or maybe more specific to this passage, can you rejoice even if people might have wrong motives? I know that's like, oh, that's so hard. Can you rejoice if people have wrong motives or do you feel the need to correct or to defend yourself when you are unfairly attacked? Or do you, do you feel the need to make sure that you are understood when you are misunderstood? Guys, do you realize that the gospel frees you from that? That Paul can do this because he understood that his identity wasn't, being ba- or wasn't based on being better than other people. That in the gospel, we are accepted by God on the basis of Jesus Christ alone. And if that is who you are in the eyes of God, then you don't have to win in the eyes of others. Let me put it like this. Because of the gospel, you are free to lose. 
Okay, you are free to give up your rights. You are free to stay silent when other people might have wrong motives. You are free to give up your rights. You don't have to earn the approval of others. See, I think the question that this passage asks us is, what matters most to you? Like, what is it that really matters most to you? Is it doing well in school? Uh, is it being liked by all your friends? Is it having a significant other, working your dream job, having a family, traveling the world? And if you don't know how to answer that question, well, I think suffering can help you answer that question. Like, what are you most afraid to lose? What is it that would just absolutely shipwreck you and ruin you if you lost it? The thing is, none of these things are bad things to desire. But they cannot be ultimate things. They cannot be things that you build your life on. Why? Because as we see in this passage, when suffering and when difficult circumstances come, when difficult people come, when life happens, if what matters most to you is something that all of those things can take away from you, then you will be ruined. Uh, Your joy will be robbed from you. If you tether your ambitions to your own comforts, to your family, to your children, on your future, they will always be vulnerable to the shattering effect of trial and suffering. And when suffering comes, it will pull you away from your joy if it's found in those things, and it will rob you over and over and over again. David Foster Wallace, um, he, the late David Foster Wallace, he, he wasn't a Christian, he was an atheist, uh, but even he understood this. This is a quote that, that he has from a, a speech that he gave a, at a commencement. He says this, If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid. You will uh, need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. And so what is that thing for you? What is that ambition for you? What is the thing that matters most to you? I think David Pallison asked a good question. He says, how is your present disappointment, discouragement, or grief a window on what has actually captured your heart? How is your present disappointment, discouragement, or grief a window on what has actually captured your heart? But friends, if you build your life on the gospel, But if what matters most to you is Jesus Christ and realize that nothing can ever take that away from you, that everything that you need, you already possess in him. And if suffering is going to come, then suffering only serves to drive me closer to Christ and it can even be reason to rejoice. Let me just say this about suffering, um, that there is a difference between finding the silver lining and what Paul is doing in this passage. Okay, I think we need to be realistic about suffering. Like we shouldn't conclude from this passage that suffering is good, that God uh, is pleased by it, or that all we do as Christians is just like pretend to smile uh, as we experience loss and suffering and difficulty. 
Okay, so, so please don't imagine Paul like, like he's Instagramming, you know, like his prison cell. He's taking a picture of the shadows, feet in chains, like his Bible's open, hashtag blessed. Like that's not what's happening, okay? He's not just like optimistic or wishful. He's very realistic. When Paul says in verse 17 that there are some who are trying to afflict him in his imprisonment, he acknowledges that being in prison is, is hard and that there are people who are trying to make it even harder. They're trying to make it worse. That there's nothing pleasant, easy, or good, or joyful about suffering itself. Uh, and so I want to make that clear to us. <clears throat> I think we need to understand that, especially as we talk with others. Like, I think for many of us, uh, like, we'd be better off if we just tried to be a good friend rather than a theologically correct counselor sometimes. But it's when we understand the sovereignty of God that we can put suffering in perspective. Right? Gordon Fee, in his commentary on Philippians, he says this, it is not that Paul is too heavenly-minded to be in touch with reality or that he sees things through rosy-tinted glasses. Rather, he sees everything in light of the bigger picture. And in that bigger picture, fully emblazoned on our screen at Calvary, there is nothing that does not fit, even if it means suffering and death on the way to resurrection. See, we begin to see that suffering and difficult circumstances afford us unique and powerful opportunities to make the gospel known. And so for us, in our own seasons of suffering, to focus only on the difficulties, to be only, to have tunnel vision and only focus on what's hard is like staring at one frame rather than the entire movie. I don't know if you guys have ever watched a movie and like, I don't know, your parents interrupt you or something and so you hit pause and it's like a freeze frame on the TV and for some reason, it like, it always happens to be that one like inappropriate scene in the movie or like, the guy's making some crazy face somehow, and you're like, what in the, how is that even part of the movie, right? And I think for us to, to just focus in our suffering is to, to look at that frame and to think that's the entire movie, right? That there are no other characters, that there is no storyline, there is no conflict and climax and resolution, but the cross of Jesus Christ, Fee says, uh, it reminds us that there is nothing that does not fit There is nothing that does not fit, even if it means suffering and death on the way to resurrection. Finally, let me close with this. It is worth it to commit your aspirations and your affections, your entire life, to the advance of the gospel. It is worth it because it is a cause that God is committed to. Stake your life on the advance of the gospel and know that God is most committed to that cause. See, I think Paul's example of joy points us to a greater example, and that's that of Jesus Christ. That if anyone understood the grief of loss and suffering and abandonment and loneliness, if anyone understood the experience of having to give up your own rights or being slandered or mocked or reviled for the sake of the gospel, it was not only Paul, but it was Jesus Christ himself. Christ understands. Because Christ was committed to the joy that was set before him. Guys, we can know a happiness in him that is out of the reach of our enemies, out of the reach of whatever circumstance, affliction may come our way. That is reason for us to commit our lives to the advance of the gospel. Hebrews 12 puts it like this, and I'll close here. Looking to Jesus, 
founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we thank you for Christ's example. We thank you that even in our darkest, most uncertain, bleakest circumstances, God, that we have a joy that is out of the reach of our enemies. That even in uh, the most unfavorable circumstances, things that we would never choose for ourselves, God, we know that you have a purpose, that you were able to bring good out of it, and that we have the opportunity as uh, agents of your gospel to make Christ known in, in even more powerful ways, to encourage the brothers and sisters around us, to make Christ known to those who don't know him. And so, Father, I pray that, that you would stamp thought on our minds that whatever it is that we might go, be going through in our own lives, that we would not just be self-focused, we would not even just be circumstantially focused, but we would be focused on Christ. We would be uh, aware of the story that you're writing and that that would be reason for joy in our lives. So be with us now as we go into small groups, uh, be with our conversations, that they would be edifying, help us to be honest uh, for your namesake. God, we thank you and we love you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.